I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Okay, Templin, what's the best part about Halloween? Dressing up, I guess. Maybe? Trick-or-treating, maybe? I'm not sure. Are there just too many good things to choose from? Yes. What about being scared? I don't really get scared on Halloween. Are you telling the truth? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't get scared of everything. I've only got scared of a few things, but that was when I was like three or two. What scared you? I don't know. Is it kind of fun to be scared sometimes? I'm not sure. Because there's fun scares and scary scares. So, I would say fun scares I like, but not scary scares I do not like. Do you think sometimes that it's all in your head? Yeah. What do you do when you get scared? I usually go to my mom and dad. Do we tell you it's all inside your head? No, you don't. That's because sometimes it's not all inside your head. That's a ghost. My name is Fitz. This is Deb. And you're listening to the Tales of Terror. The Dirtbag Diaries! Happy Halloween. Today, we've got three incredible stories that are sure to send shivers up your spine. Thanks for contributing, everyone. Happy Halloween. New Year's 2017. My husband, two of our closest friends, and I were determined to go camping. Negative 8 degree windchill wasn't going to keep us from spending the first night of the new year outside. We assumed it would bring us good luck. If we spent the first night out in the wild, won't that mean we'd spend most of the next 364 nights there as well? We loaded up the Xterra and Forerunner, slightly hungover from too much cheap champagne at midnight, and headed out. The plan was to drive to Mount Baker Forest Roads with a stop for greasy food somewhere in the foothills and then see how far we could get before the tires got stuck. Then we'd set up camp in the back of our SUVs and build a gigantic fire to try and make the night a little less miserable. You know, classic winter car camping. So that's what we did. We drove, got lunch at a small diner in the Mount Baker wilderness, and then hit the highway again. We eventually found a forest road and turned on the high beams and kicked it into four-wheel drive. After an hour or so of chewing up an unplowed forest road, we eventually got stuck in foot-deep snow. We dug ourselves out and drove on until a downed tree across the road 
stopped us from getting any farther. Home for the first night of the year. We built a fire, shivering, as we cooked dinner in the pitch black of the cloudy, bitter night. We sipped on hot chocolate, then on whiskey. We sat there, our voices getting louder and louder as we told stories around the fire, knowing no one could hear us. Whiskey in hand, dinner cooking on the camp stove, laughing. Out of the black night, the figure of a man, illuminated by the light of our fire. Standing mere feet away from us in the black, cold night, he had somehow just emerged on this forest road, traipsing through foot-deep snow and negative-degree temperatures, his dark, hollow eyes stared directly ahead of him and straight through us, not faltering as he rigidly marched forward. He wore an oversized cotton sweatshirt and sweatpants with a drawstring gym bag. Not a single one of the 10 essentials could be spotted on him. Was this real? My first instinct was to say hello, but as the wind stopped and the chill of the night deepened, the words caught in the back of my throat. What do you say to a shadowed man out in the wilderness? Those seconds he moved in the firelight felt like years. We stared at him, unsure if what we were seeing was real, and then stared at each other, desperately searching in the eyes of our friends. Were they also seeing this? The man seemed to suck up all the sound around him. We couldn't even hear the snow crunch beneath his feet. The only sound was my husband, his back turned from us, blissfully unaware of what was happening, so casually telling his story while tending to dinner over the stove. In the moments after the man disappeared again into the darkness, we just stared at each other, stunned. My husband turned to the three of us, our sudden quietness alerting him something was up. Once we came to our senses, we grabbed a spotlight and directed it towards his path, back down the forest road from whence we came. The snowy trees lit up, the road, but not even a shoe print could be found in the snow. As we explained to my husband what we had seen, he was certain we were playing a joke on him. It wasn't until I jumped on the tailgate, tears in my eyes, as I described the blank stare of the unknown man that he believed our crazy tale. We were quiet the rest of the evening as we ate dinner and continued to shiver by the fire. Every few minutes, one of us would shine the spotlight and loops on the darkness around us, searching for something, anything, that would give us answers. We made our beds, crawled into the back of our SUVs, and locked the doors. We were nervous about staying where we were, but more nervous to leave, which was in the direction the man had walked. After a restless night, we packed up and drove out the way we came. We searched for any sign of what had happened the night before. Footprints, lost gear, a body. But we left with nothing and with no answers. When I close my eyes, I can still see him standing there, the light of the fire on his face, 
the cold crawling up my back. That was Amy England. Next up, we've got Audrey Howarth and Alex Klingman, who co-wrote the scary story together. Audrey narrates. Our trusty Subaru Pukeko bumped its way deeper into New Zealand's West Matukituki Valley. Fall was coming to an end. Snow dusted the peaks and a deep chill settled on the valley floor. My boyfriend and adventure partner, Alex, and I had been climbing and trekking our way through the country. As the seasons changed, we headed out on a three-day trip to a remote system of backcountry huts in the Mount Aspiring Wilderness. The dirt road was narrow and riddled with potholes. The darkness swallowed our headlights as we crept deeper into the night. We passed no one, and a feeling of complete isolation set in. The gravel lot was empty when we arrived. Tucked between gear, we settled in for the night. Only the eyes of sheep shone under a moonless sky. Early the next morning, we crawled out of the car and strapped on our packs. Sheer granite peaks loomed overhead. As we hiked, clouds swept over the last bit of blue sky. We quickened our pace. Wouldn't this be a great backdrop for a scary movie? Alex teased. A drizzle began, and I couldn't wait to take off my boots and make a fire. The next few kilometers dragged, but finally the hut came into view. A gathering of small buildings rose from a dark clearing, encircled by an old evergreen forest. The hut had been built nearly a century ago by the New Zealand Alpine Club. It was made of old wooden timbers painted black, now chipped and weathered with time. A crumbling stone chimney rose from its center. Since it was now officially the off-season, the hut warden and the summer visitors had gone back to the city. Protruding ominously from the darkness, the whole thing looked like an ancient ghost town. The rain picked up as we made our way inside. I started dinner, a backpacker's delicacy of ramen and tuna, while Alex went outside to split firewood for the coming night. As I peered out the window, my eyes wandered to the abandoned shelters and I couldn't shake the feeling I wasn't the only one watching him. Soon, night fell, and the only light came from the faint glow of the wood-burning stove. Alex climbed to his preferred spot on the top bunk, and we drifted to sleep, cozy in our down bags, to the patter of rain on the old tin roof. Something woke me from my sleep. The rain had stopped, and an eerie silence engulfed the hut. Only a few embers flickered in the utter darkness. All of a sudden, I heard footsteps in the hallway. Giant strides, heavy boots, down the hallway into the door. It creaked open and shut with a soft thud. It's just Alex getting up for a midnight pee, I convinced myself. I listened intently for his return, but all I could hear was my own heartbeat thumping in my chest. What's taking him so long? I switched on my headlamp and shined it on the upper bunk. A lone ray of light revealed Alex 
sound asleep. I felt the breath catch in my throat and a shiver run down my spine. I laid there, frozen. Then grabbing my bag, I crawled up next to Alex and spent a sleepless night waiting for the footsteps to return. The next morning dawned with a gray sky. The fog lumbered by like the waters of a tired, flat river. I told Alex of my unsettling night over a mug of instant coffee. Before I could finish, the blood drained from his face and he pulled back the sleeve of his flannel. Goosebumps shivered all down his arm. I knew something didn't feel right about this place, he said as he stood up. We should get out of here. We ate a quick breakfast and hurriedly packed our gear. No need to linger. We shouldered our packs and headed further into the valley, not looking back. Our plan was to head to a hut nestled in the high alpine. With each step, I began to feel lighter. However, the weather deteriorated once we reached treeline. Heavy snow fell, creating ice beneath our feet. With visibility less than a few meters, we had to make a decision. Carrying on risked us getting snowed in without enough supplies. Heading back meant returning to the hut. Despite a looming sense of dread, past experience in the mountains convinced us to turn around. The descent took twice as long and was painstakingly tedious. We pushed through dark groves of beech trees cloaked in frozen moss. Everything felt eerie, and jokes did little to lighten the mood. Finally, last night's hut came into view. We were relieved to see smoke rising from the chimney. Friends at last, I said. I hope they brought whiskey. We opened the door. Nothing but silence greeted our entrance. We called, Hello? No one answered. But the smell of a recently extinguished fire was undeniable. Alex and I looked at each other, the obvious question in our eyes. Stay another night or hightail it out of the valley? Without a word, the decision was as clear as the sky was dark. We had to get out. As we fled, I felt the icy glare of the hut on my back. About a hundred meters down the trail, Alex peered over his shoulder and his eyes grew large. He pleaded with me to look back and convince him that he hadn't just seen someone standing in the window. I'll never know what he saw that evening because I chose never to look back. However, one thing is certain. The storm was not the only thing pushing us out of the valley that weekend. Next up, Trevor McIntyre. It was my first time back in Utah as a visitor rather than a resident. My work brought me back home for the week, and I couldn't resist a night under the stars like I'd done so many times before. From the hundreds of canyons in southern Utah's public lands, I chose one at random and aimed my car toward it, hoping for a view of the sunset over the desert. As soon as I parked under a juniper tree and stepped out of my car, an uneasy feeling washed over me. I tried to ignore the feeling as I gathered my things, 
but I felt a presence watching my every move. It was the first time I had ever felt unwelcome in my home state. Too proud to find a motel, I ignored the creepy feeling, but grabbed my hatchet just in case. I slammed the trunk shut, tossed my bedroll over a barbed wire fence, and followed a drainage toward the emptiness. I wandered across the slick rock and into a narrow canyon that was thick with bushes, cottonwood trees, and pools of brown water. I trudged ahead without a trail, navigating my way to the canyon rim 100 feet above. It was getting dark, and soon all I could see were the silhouettes of branches and rocks as I scanned the walls for a route to the top. As I crunched through the brush, I heard footsteps walking behind me. When I turned, nothing was there. But when I continued on, so did the steps. I wasn't alone. Someone or something was walking with me. I continued tripping over rocks and snagging on branches and looked up to see a perched great horned owl staring directly at me. I froze and stared back at its glowing eyes, my heart pounding out of my chest. After a silent moment, it flew away, its wings slapping the wind as it soared up and out of the canyon. As I watched it go, a path appeared below it, the exit route I was searching for. As I climbed up the canyon wall, a cool breeze replaced the stale air of the canyon. I found a slick rock ledge overlook and watched the last slice of daylight fade to black. I laid on my back, staring at the stars, pushing from my thoughts the owl, the footsteps, the uneasy, unwelcomed feeling. A chorus of crickets lulled me to sleep, nothing but the warm, sun-baked sandstone beneath me. Hours passed. I awoke to the sound of breathing. I sat up and stared into the pitch-black abyss below, and the breathing grew louder, closer, maybe twenty yards away. Swift, rhythmic breathing grunting, growling, like lumber being cut by a carpenter saw. Then, the sound of heavy hoofsteps running straight toward me. I jumped up, grabbed my hatchet, and screamed vulgarities as loud as I could. I was a sitting duck on that ledge. I didn't know if it was a bear, desert bighorn, javelina, mountain lion, an upset rancher, or a skinwalker. I raised my hatchet in the air with one hand and scrambled for my phone's flashlight with the other. The light flicked on, but the beam was too weak to see anything beyond the ledge. I continued to shout, the sounds raced closer, but I was blind to whatever was down below. Then as quickly as it approached, the creature stopped, changed direction, and ran up the canyon in the opposite direction. I stared into the darkness, straining my eyes to see what it was, but it was too dark. I yelled at the top of my lungs. Silence. I put on my boots, rolled up my bed, and ran across the mesa toward my car. 
With my phone's flashlight, I navigated through the trees, rocks, and cliffs. I finally made it to the barbed wire fence and threw my bedroll over. I tumbled through and groped my pockets for my keys. That's when I knew my night wasn't over. My keys were gone. I searched the dusty red ground all around me, but they were nowhere to be found. Terrified, adrenaline soaring, I ran back across the mesa in a hopeless effort to find my keys, but every marker and every ledge looked identical. After an hour of backtracking, I was too tired for fear. I replayed the scene over and over in my head and somehow reasoned that I had imagined the sounds, the footsteps, and even the owl. With my mind at ease, it occurred to me to use the Maps app on my phone, and within minutes, I was back to my ledge. There, on the slick rock, my keys. In a final effort to convince myself that it was a dream, I paused and took one long, last look into the abyss. The moon had risen over the horizon, and I could see some definition in the darkness. Among the trees on the canyon floor, I saw a shadow that was darker than the rest. It was a large, black figure, suddenly still, as if it had spotted me too. This time, I didn't yell. I didn't make a sound. I backed away slowly from the canyon rim and ran. Thanks to Amy England, Audrey Howarth, Alex Klingman, and Trevor McIntyre for those spine-tingling tales. I think I'm in the Halloween spirit now. Definitely. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. They have joined companies across the U.S. in supporting Time to Vote, a campaign aimed at increasing voter participation through employer programs such as paid time off, a day without meetings, and resources for mail-in ballots and early voting. Democracy requires showing up. Please make a voting plan for the November midterms. Because not a lot of people vote. Like, less than half the people in this country do. So, don't be one of those people. Seriously. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. Choose from their lineup of sturdy, easy-to-use, good-looking hitch racks and roof racks. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support also comes from Voss & Brewing, crafting experimental Belgium farmhouse and sour ales like Cranbiscus Otter. Or the Wired Walrus, Smoked Farmhouse. Stop by the Richmond, Virginia Tap House and try them all. Uh, just be careful about the next morning. We are excited to launch the second season of our podcast, Safety Third. Host Patty O'Connell and Elizabeth Nakano talk with badass athletes and thinkers about their beliefs forged in adventure. The season kicks off with Bam Mendiola, and episodes will release every other week. You can find it on iTunes. It's a good option when there's not a diaries out there. Music today by Aiden Baker, Sergey Karamazov, The F'd Up Beep, Kai Angle, Amy Stolzenbach, and David Beard. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song, and you can find links to the artists on our website. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Becca Call, and me, Fitzcall. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.